Hello, and welcome to On The Irregular with Java Berry, a podcast where I chat to women from all walks of life about their own unique creative journey, how they got here, how their story has shaped their creative work, what they've learned, what has helped them, and where they plan to go from here. It's an irregular journey for so many of us, and I am delighted to offer a platform to share these fascinating stories and wells of wisdom. This week, I'm talking to Kirana Stammel, an Australian actress based in the UK. Kirana has worked extensively on both stage and screen. Her credits include Moulin Rouge, Life's Too Short and The New Pope, alongside a prolific stage career. Kirana and I met in Manchester in our early 20s. Fast forward 17 years and Kirana is busy filming a big budget drama in the south of France. I was lucky enough to catch up with her between scenes. We talked about Kirana's acting journey as a woman with dwarfism and in our enthusiasm we went slightly off topic touching on subjects including the pandemic, breaking down systemic barriers and appropriate dress for a funeral. To hear the second part of her story, tune into next week's episode for Chapter 2. Welcome to Chapter 1 with Kieran Estamel. Thank you so much for joining me, Kiz. Um, I no know problem. In the south of France, it looks very sunny from the little bit that I saw through your window. It's scorchingly sunny, actually. I've been putting sun cream on every single day and then topping up. God, you're responsible. I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. typical in mum mode, like covering the kids on sunscreen and then just completely <laughs> forgetting about myself and ending up as a lobster. Um, so, so yeah, when I first thought about this podcast, you were one of the first people that I thought about because I was really interested in talking to women about the trajectory of their careers and their creative paths and all the different careers and, you know, jobs that they've had and how they've kind of arrived at where they are now and where they're going to. And I've always found yours really interesting because also because you're incredibly, um, articulate and funny and great at telling just a good yarn. Oh, um, thank you. And I always loved your anecdotes. And um, and then kind of like, I felt like I, I met you, we met what, in Manchester, because we used to live, to, well, we lived together later on, but we met in Manchester just after you had, or while you were in a play with um, yeah. your boyfriend at the time. Um, and I remember the first story that you told me was your audition for that play and how how and it was a very kind of atypical audition and it always stuck with me and it's a story that I've gone on to tell other people well it's it's really interesting actually because that audition came off um in some ways the back of my university degree which was in digital media and communications Mm -hmm. and I had always wanted to be an actor and a dancer But this was in the late 90s, so 1998, 1999, 2000, sometime around there. I was at university doing digital media and communications because my mother had very wisely, uh, towards the end of high school, taken me to one of the most brilliant careers advisors I'd ever met. And I had an hour with this woman who was like, so, Kirina, you know, what do you want to do with your life, You, you know? your mum tells me that you want to be an actress. And I was like, yep, that's right. I want to be an actress. And she was like, well, at the moment in Australia, um, you know, because of your dwarfism, so I'm only, I think, uh, approximately just over three foot tall. um, Because of your dwarfism, you're going to meet a lot of discrimination in the industry. And I actually think you will probably meet discrimination before you've even begun trying to get into drama school. 
here in Australia. So I think audition for drama school in Australia, but have a plan B that allows you to make your own work, but more importantly, be able to market yourself and reach out to people who might make the kind of work you'd like to be in. Wow, what a savvy woman. She was so on it. And she said, oh, there's a degree at the moment at the University of New South Wales where you'll be able to do theatre and film, but uh, the core of the degree is digital media, which you'll be learning to, you know, self-tape, make short films, uh, work in new media because there's this thing, you know, the internet's really booming and I believe that's where the future's going to be. Wow. So she was completely on it. So I auditioned for NIDA in Australia and was openly told, oh, there's no point training a dwarf. Um, so even though I got through a lot of the audition rounds, I knew that I was dealing with a big prejudice and not going to be allowed to crack it and just be able to actually play human beings, which is kind of, you know, where I'd always wanted to be placed as an actor. And so is so, NIDA, is NIDA like a drama school in Australia? Yeah, National Institute of Dramatic Art. It's where a large number of um, famous Australians have kind of graduated from. Okay. Um And so, you know, that was my experience auditioning for them in the late 90s, early noughties. I can never quite remember the exact year that these things happened. And so I went to the University of New South Wales um, and did the theatre degree in digital media and and studied new media. And then through that, um, you know, we were learning to kind of make short films. And so through the internet, I started to reach out to uh, British theatre makers because Britain um, in the early noughties was doing a big diversity push where the Labour government at the time was aware that they kind of wanted to do a little bit of social engineering and that included um, representations of disabled people. So there was a really kind of um, brief window where there was a positive push for diversity which included disability in the arts in the UK. And I'd reached out through the internet, which was basically kind of, you know, this new thing um, and made contact with directors and got to email them directly and, and just told them my story and the barriers I was running into and the kind of work that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And one of them emailed back because the, because the internet was so kind of new in, in many ways for, yeah. for a lot of people, that kind of contact was like, wow, somebody's contacted me from Australia and they want to fly over and see my work that, you know, it was a little bit like um, being able to grab people in during COVID, you know, people kind of were a little bit excited by this new tech, so open to communication that was coming in. So I reached out and Richard Gregory was one of the directors I got in touch with. And he said, I've got this production coming up that you could be great for, but I'm not going to say fly to the UK because I'm not promising you a job. Like I'd want to audition you. So I said to him, well, I've got access to, you know, these cameras at uni. Why don't you give me some stimulus questions and I will improv or edit together kind of like, you know, a new media recording of my audition and I'll express myself kind of that way um and he was like oh well that sounds that sounds interesting so he emailed over a couple of stimulus questions and one of them was um you're trying to tell a story but you keep getting interrupted and having to go back to the beginning of the story so I um grabbed a digital video camera from uni and got my friend to surreptitiously film me stood in a lift while I tried to tell 
everybody in the lift the story of my you know kind of first attempt at driving but of course lifts stop on every floor and people come and go and so it'd be like thank you for coming into the lift oh, I'm sorry you'll never get to hear the end of the story and I'd start the story again for the new person yeah. and I physically had to post over because we you know we forget that miniature screens and being able to send uh, video uh, was relative is relatively new like you know Netflix and streaming I, I know it's been around for a few years but being able to shrink video like that is you know still relatively new that you know back in the early noughties I had to film it um, edit it on a computer but then I had to physically post over wow. the digital videotape to England Mm -hmm. so we did it that way he watched it got back in touch and went I'm happy to offer you a job if you want and so I flew to the UK for you know my first acting job and never really looked back and that was about 20 years ago wow I mean I'm not surprised he offered you the job just <laughs> I mean partly also because you are a great storyteller but the idea the execution of it is just so perfect and so clever well I had to think I was like you know, what are the practicalities and limitations that I was working with? And, you know, I was like, oh, I can't get a big group of actors together and, and help me do this audition. And I don't want to just pretend that I'm telling the story. You know, yeah, it was just like a lift to me was something that meant I'd completely get interrupted, with, you know, by the doors opening and people coming and going, but also that people don't talk in a lift. Yeah. So it was really interesting that there I am stood in the lift and these random people are getting in and I'm I'm just chatting away, trying to tell them a story. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, I got one or two, I'm so sorry, I've got to go. This is my floor. You know, it was quite funny. <laughs> and so, so you said that you'd always wanted to be a dancer and an actor. You, you did tap dancing, didn't you, when you were younger? Yeah. So I trained from the age of three. Um, I always wanted to be a dancer and... Uh, my parents are both average height. So, I mean, they kind of, I suppose, witness a lot of the discrimination I meet as a little person from the outside. But from the age of three, I tried many different dance schools. And again, it was that same kind of thing of either they thought it was a charitable act that they were teaching me and it was nice that I was included or they were begrudging that I was there and wish I wasn't there mucking up the evenness of their dance troupe or um, they didn't think I could do it so they wouldn't push me. So I tried many, many different dance schools in Sydney and it wasn't until at the age of eight that I found Beryl Ellis Dancers, which was a lovely woman called Janet Musgrave who um, she was a very serious dance teacher um, so she would push everyone. But underneath it she had this beautiful belief that if anybody wanted to dance, it was their right to dance and she would push them to achieve their personal best, which is a really beautiful attitude, I think, to have to dancing rather than I think so often um, dance teachers or dance culture can be uh, too founded in body fascism. You know, you hear the story of the amazing dancer and ballerina, but suddenly she hits puberty and her boobs get too big. Or, you know, she's about to go up on point and they realise that her second toe is too long to kind of go in a point shoe. So talent is squandered simply because people aren't wanting to kind of work around uh, body differences. And those differences, I mean, when it comes to ballet particularly, are so tiny. 
you know, like the turnout of a hip or the length of toes or the the level of an arch in somebody's foot. And I think, you know, there's something really lovely when somebody is just about, do you know what, I'm actually about the art form and maybe the limitations are interesting and maybe there are workarounds and, you know, the fact that somebody enjoys and loves what they're doing and is dedicated to it is more important, you know, is more important over whether or not they've got the perfect feet to do it. Um, because I think as human beings, there's only certain things we can control, which really are our actions, you know, and we can't massively control the way that our feet are formed or, you know, we can do surgery and things on them afterwards, but being blessed with kind of naturally the perfect body is, you know, is one thing and sort of removing the unfairness associated with that. Um, I thought was a really beautiful thing that, you know, Miss Jan did. So am I right in thinking that you became a champion tap dancer? Well, it's quite funny, you know, because I'm, I'm working with this lovely um, younger actress, Liv Hill, who is in her early 20s at the moment, and she was BAFTA nominated and is very, very humble about it. And I was teasing her about her humility because I was like, you know, Liv, I said, I won a tap dancing competition back in 1992 and I'm still <laughs> talking about it. You know, like, be proud of your BAFTA nomination. And she's like, oh, no, I don't want people to think you're bragging. I went, you know what? I want a photograph of you for every nomination you ever get or every prize you ever win in your phone. And should anybody ever mention or tease you about any of those awards, I want you to arrogantly bring out the photographs and go, look, here's me <laughs> holding it. Here's me here, sat waiting for the announcement. Um because I don't think we celebrate this stuff enough, but seriously, I am still waxing lyrical about having won this tap dancing competition. And if you've ever seen Strictly Ballroom, the Australian oh, yeah, movie. Oh, one of my favourite films of all time, yes. Yeah, so it was a bit similar to the Pan Pacific Champions. I technically was a Silver Star South Pacific tap dancing champion. So... Yeah, I mean, I beat a lot of people. And what was lovely about that particular tap competition was it was based on tap exam work. So we were all doing the same choreography. Uh, so to win that was really emotionally massive for me because, I mean, I've always been aware that I'm physically different. And being able to win a dance competition against uh, girls and boys who were doing the same choreography as me was the what well the first moment in my life as a 14 year old where I was like oh my god I actually I might have a chance somebody might one day actually recognize my talent for or recognize me for something that I do rather than just how I look and that gave me so much heart and it was such a big deal because you basically did the exam round and they'd eliminate and then you'd find your number put up on a board and you'd go back and you'd do the next round and they'd eliminate again. And they, you know, kept doing that until you get down to the final routine number. And I did my routine and, you know, that meant that I was in the top six, which meant I was going to get a medal at least. And then they read the, um, 
the winning out backwards. So in sixth position was blah, blah. In fifth position was blah, blah. In fourth position, was, and I'm like, oh, I'm not in any of them. Oh my God, I might be in the top three. Third position is blah, blah. Oh my God, I'm not in the top. Oh my God, I'm going to be first or I'm going to be second. Second position is blah, blah. Oh my God. And at that point you knew you'd won. And uh, aside from the day I got engaged, that's the highest I've ever naturally felt. The, you know, the, the, the most natural high I've ever experienced in my life. And it lasted a good 72 hours. That's fantastic. Did you crash afterwards? Oh, my God, yeah. I got home. Uh, mum, because my mum, oh, my God, my mum always plays it so cool because she's never, ever wanted to be a stage mum. So if there was a, a dance competition or, or an extra lesson or something I wanted to do, her response would be, and have you worked out transport and how you're going to get there? <laughs> You know, and I'd be like, well, I was hoping you'd drive me. She's like, yeah, okay, I'm available. Um, but she'd always really play it down. So each round we got through, mum would just be like playing it super cool. And, you know, she'd be like, oh, that's really good. Well, let's see what happens at the next round. And, um, yeah, so she obviously I think was on cloud nine but never kind of yeah. wanted to ham it up. So she was beaming. But, I, I mean, I, I did, wouldn't have <laughs> noticed at the time because I was too my own kind of teenage experience yeah. of the world. Um, but I do remember in the middle of the night after having one, I sat up and vomited all over the end of the bed, which just must have been <laughs> the adrenaline, and then fell straight back asleep. So I literally like sat up, in, sat up, puked, lay back down. And I remember mum coming into my bedroom in the morning and I'm like, oh, my God, mum, I had this weird dream that I vomited everywhere. And she's like, oh, oh, you have. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, you know your, your body has its limits I guess there's only so much wonder one body can actually hold at any point oh my goodness imagine what you'll do if you win a BAFTA Kirina or when you win a BAFTA oh my god we'll be vomiting for days oh my god I can't believe I want that <laughs> in fact actually I'd probably, you know, with, I mean, it'd make the news, wouldn't I? I'd become quite famous if I was the only actress to ever go up except the BAFTA and vomit during the, uh, the, the ceremony of acceptance. It'd be the shortest speech ever told, but um, weirdly, somehow I feel like it would be the most accurate. <laughs> and so that's interesting you say about your mum. It sounds like your mum possibly was coming from quite a protective place with yeah like let's rein this in let's rein this in um yeah. and because i because i can imagine that yeah your parents must have felt quite protective and like from what your careers counselor said you know she was being very honest with you and very clear yeah. this is this is the situation it's so fantastic that she gave you the tools to work with or kind yeah. of you know, she pointed you in the right direction to find those tools and I think it's really important, actually, that in our society, we acknowledge the prejudices that, that exist and that they're real, mm -hmm. but we enable people ways and routes around them. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in some ways, that's still quite um, like a very modern conversation that I think, you know, we're sort of having in our society today around kind of privilege and access to things. And, you know, a lot of it's still quite quite new to a lot of people but I find it really interesting that in terms of disability um that that's kind of a a really clear example often because with disability particularly also physical disability you've got not only ideological barriers 
but you've actually got uh, physical ones as well that are in spaces that are preventing access to, you know, a, a working kitchen, for example. Like, so, you know, I would find an average height kitchen quite dangerous to work in because I need to work on steps and I'm working with hot food and knives and, and things like that. And the ideological barrier for me is, do we live in a society that will provide me funding to modify my kitchen so that I can make it accessible to me. So that's the ideology there of the do we fund it? And then the physical barrier is do we remove the physical barrier by then building the accessible kitchen? Mm -hmm. So I think with a lot of kind of equality um, and, and rights conversations at the moment, uh, they're not quite finessing those arguments clearly yet for the majority of people, where people are very good at identifying an inequality, uh, but not yet able to kind of um, talk about it in a way that means we can remove the systematic barriers. Mm -hmm. I'm still surprised when I meet people and, you know, I'm like, hi, I'm a, well, I don't do this as an opening line, but, but in theory, at some point I might mention that I'm a disabled woman and the number of people that go, I don't see you as disabled. And I'm like, oh, how would I make a cup of tea in your kitchen? Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And, it, and it's like, well, I don't expect you to, like, you can't possibly, you know, have a complete understanding about my experience all my life but you could just accept when I tell you that I'm a disabled woman that I'm a disabled woman like it's very interesting this weird sense of but but I don't know I need to understand I need to approve and, and accept the label that you're happy to to give yourself and I'm like why yeah yeah but it's because they worry that a label like that means I'm taking something from them money or benefits or something that, you know, I'm undeserving of. And this weird sense of I need to understand why you've got that thing. And I find that really interesting, that human, I don't know, because then they're, they're not giving Jeff Bezos the same scrutiny of, oh, how come you don't get to pay taxes? I know. You know, it just doesn't translate. And, I you know. know. I know. I've, I've, I don't, I've never understood that really, what, is that just is that an incredibly effective manipulation from those in power of you know fight amongst yourselves don't look at us um or is it this idea that don't you know people don't critique the rich because they hope one day to be the rich to be you know to have that status to have that power and that's something to aim for is that just like capitalism in in its purest form i, I don't I think it's I think it's all those things and I also think it's just the human failing which we've seen with Meghan Markle where we love to um kind of focus on an individual because it's easier for you and me to get emotional or to gossip about an individual and to bond over that than to kind of throw it out to a broader group or to a systematic issue. Like, I think it's just that as a species, I don't think we're evolved yet beyond that. Mm -hmm. That There's something really exciting about being able to talk about that person, them over there that we think are already probably marginalized or lack a certain level of power um, and bond over that and try and feel connected to one another by, you know, pointing out the the other 
you know, in the room rather than get deep or philosophical about, you know, business people and their tax setups, which many people don't even understand how taxation works for themselves. So it's just that that's a harder, more complicated, complex idea. And so we'll avoid that. And we'll talk about the immigrant that stole our cookie. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess because, yeah, there's probably like a lack of understanding about it's, it's the immediate you're being told immediately. I guess, yeah, if you think about, um, you know, you've lost your job because there's somebody else who is agreeing to pay to work for less taking your job yeah. then that's something that you can see and you can you can have a limited understanding of but you've got somebody to instantly blame and target yeah them. yeah the whole kind of the whole the bigger picture is so much broader and actually so much more to understand how do you mm. and that's where revolution I suppose comes in isn't it but then to truly that's huge that's really quite huge yeah and, and you know what's been interesting about being in France actually speaking of revolution was we were filming um, in Chenisset, which is this beautiful chateau, probably my favourite. And I love it that you have a favourite chateau. I do now. I do now. And what's interesting about it is, um, uh, just for people listening, I'm, I'm shooting a TV show called The Serpent Queen, and it's about Catherine de Domici. And um, the, there's a true part of the story where, and so it's, this is history I'm sharing with you, not major plot points. Um, Catherine's husband, Henry, was in a relationship with a woman called uh, Diane or Diane, depending on, you know, who you speak to. And they lived together in Chenisset, um, which is this beautiful chateau. And when Henry died, the mistress, you know, it's the quickest way to get rid of the mistress is the husband dies and the mistress has no legitimate claim over uh, crying at the funeral, for example. So the relationship which was problematic for Catherine, is um, vanished with the death of her husband and the mistress doesn't have the right to mourn because it's the wife that sort of has um, that status socially. So so finally she, you know, the mistress is, is got rid of and Catherine um, takes back the chateau that the mistress had, had owned and, and renovated. And it's this beautiful, beautiful chateau which survived the French Revolution because like many of the beautiful buildings, those revolutionaries, once they got into power, wanted the same stuff as everybody they were ousting from power, which is this gorgeous chateau, the beautiful paintings, the the stunning tapestries. So I find it really interesting with revolutionaries that, you know, essentially they're just displacing one group, but to then become them. And then what's amazing about Chenisei is you hear its story in World War II. So it's got this bridge that crosses a river and it's part of part of the, the chateau. And um, the bridge led during World War II to the French resistance side of the river. And one side was completely occupied by German Nazis because they'd occupied the other side of the river. And they both agreed to never bomb or damage the chateau because just like the French revolutionaries, whoever won the war wanted this beautiful palace. So, the you know, the palace's own beauty in a way uh, 
protects it from people that are wanting to rape, pillage and ransack because they're actually also wanting to take claim and, and make, you know, the chateau their, their headquarters if they win the war. And so I find that kind of fascinating that all throughout history, you've got these these monuments of, and architecture that that were stunning, that were preserved simply because the person not in power trying to overthrow the powerful were like, yeah, well, I want to keep that trophy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it happened every time. You know, it happened between the two women who were fighting over Henry, then it happened again during the French Revolution, and then it happened again during World War Two. Yeah. And this is going to carry on. How do you break that cycle? I oh, see. I think humans need to have an evolutionary leap. And there's a little bit of me that thinks climate change is that sharp that we've got to jump. We either pull, like, I feel like coronavirus is a, is a minor, a mini version of the sharp. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of think climate change is that sharp where we either get over ourselves and work together and share resources or we, we go under. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I think I can't really see because I, I you know, I, I dared to hope that, that the pandemic might change something. But, you know, I think Jeff Bezos and um, Richard Branson have just proved that absolutely nothing has changed, you know that the money that they have is being used to to stop hung, world hunger. It's being used to jet off into space. Or even, yeah. like, you know, things like... So I was reading an article the other day about Cannes Festival, and um, it was a journalist of the New York Times, and she was just saying how strange it was to be there after everything that the whole world has been through and is still going through, and that they're still celebrating celebrities like the deities and yeah. they talking about this gap, the gap in the film industry where films hadn't been made. It's like it, a gap. You're talking about, seriously, it's been like a worldwide pandemic. Mm. And it's like, God, just right back to, right back to normal or whatever, you know, that you mean the, the bad old times, you know, surely we could have, we really could have pushed forward and pushed through this. And was it Arundhati Roy? I think she said, you know, we could, this could be a portal. Mm. And I thought that was such a perfect word for it, that it could be a portal. Like you said, an evolutionary step. But like we do, we need, we need to move forward in really quite a huge transformative way. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like there's quite a big gap as well. There are those of us that believe the pandemic's real, that are seeing the effects of it, that are happy to um, curtail our freedoms and choices for a sense of the greater good. And then there are those, you know, some of my really lovely neighbours who were the first to volunteer when Gareth and I had to shield for his health, um, but which I find quite an oxymoron because they were really helpful and really... Um, sweet and really you know really supportive of us shielding but anti-masks anti-vaccination anti the lockdown and kind of not believing that any of it is as serious as we thought it was yeah you know and I I find that it's like there are those that want to face a problem head on and talk about it frankly and then there are those that a little bit like Trump want to you know, gaslight themselves, redefine it, read more about it until it gets grayer and fuzzier and and more um, tending towards conspiratorial ideas. And I think that there's that kind of split that I kind of even still see in terms of, 
you know, people who are racist or have really backward thinking, but can drive and use a mobile phone that somehow the knowledge and, and intelligence to use technology and tools does not preclude you from being small minded and unintelligent in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's that thing, isn't it? It's like if your grandmother can learn how to use a mobile phone, she can learn how to be anti-racist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd think. You'd think. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't necessarily seem to correlate, yeah. you know. I just find that quite, you know, or, or they can accept the technology and science in a mobile phone, like somehow it's just given and there, but the technology and science behind a vaccination is not to be trusted. And funnily enough, you know, the idea that somebody will be chipping you with that vaccine, but if you're carrying a mobile phone, you're chipped and tracked anyway. Oh, God, yeah, completely. Well, like with the whole track and trace up, oh, I don't want to be tracked, that you already are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time you spend something on it, you know, I mean, I think it's impossible to truly go off grid unless you're literally just living with cash. And even then, how are you getting the cash out of the bank? You know, you've got to be, you know, completely creating a cash system that's connected to nothing yeah yeah you need to create your own community a kind of an exchanging community yeah where you have apps where you don't where you are completely off grid and you don't use cash and you don't have bills and no you know and you're harvesting your own seeds so yeah. you never need to go anywhere and buy seeds <laughs> yeah yeah and i guess building your own tools Jesus. Yeah, making everything from scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's truly impossible to be completely, completely off grid unless you've lived somewhere on your own and allowed people to forget that you ever existed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that does sound a little bit like my dad. <laughs> oh, do you think he's managed it? <laughs> well, he lives. He lives in South Wales, um, and he doesn't trust cash machines really. Okay. Or, yeah. I mean, he does go to the bank though, so that that does count. But um, yeah, and he's very, he's quite isolated. If it was up to him, he would quite happily, yeah, just have live in the middle of nowhere and yeah. and never buy anything. Yeah, have no ties to civilization whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it might happen. I can see the appeal. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> totally. When I had kids, I think that was like that's what I want to do because I don't want the society to touch them. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, Sorry, anyway, coming back, coming, I thought I would, like, now we're talking about my dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just want to circle back around to your dancing, just um, because I it just popped into my mind that you were saying that you felt really um, excited when you won this award. Uh, mm -hmm. for, you know, your, your, for your tap dancing, that you felt that your your work and your skill would be recognised. Yeah, and and then we kind of like sped over sped over things, and you were talking about the job in the UK, but you actually you had a really big dancing job in a really huge blockbuster film. Oh yeah, very young. <laughs> yeah, so my my first kind of really big proper acting job and dance job was Moulin Rouge. Uh, so I was 18, um, turning 19 when I did that. And I mean, you know, I'd grown up in Bondi. Um, I'd been to Greece with my family, you know, uh, once when I was younger, but, but I hadn't sort of traveled internationally and Australia can be quite a monoculture as well. So in many ways, I was quite naive. I mean, I had the beginnings of my disability politics, but even then it was fairly 
uninformed. It was based on my own individual experiences of feeling persecuted and, and othered by strangers. Um, and so I had enrolled at university and was looking for a summer job and extra work had kind of popped up at the newly built Fox Studios. So I enrolled in that because, you know, I just thought, you know, I'm not, I'm living at home. I'm not paying any rent. I'll get some cash in my pocket and a daily rate. And I had trained as a dancer and, a, you know, been acting at university and, and training and doing all of that sort of on the side and on the weekends and after school. And so I'd signed up as um, an extra and the woman who was the casting director for the extras was like, oh, you've got quite a lot of dance and kind of, you know, acting experience in your background. I'll mention you to the director. And by dumb luck, she was sat next to Baz Luhrmann the next day at lunch, mentioned me, and then suddenly I had an audition. And I went in and I auditioned and I got, you know, a lovely role as a professional dancer in the show. And then every day I went on set, uh, CM, Baz Luhrmann's wife, who's the designer of um, uh, Moulin Rouge and a lot of his films, she really liked me and just liked making costumes for me. So I found myself put in more and more scenes simply to wear the outfits that she was making. And suddenly then I was, you know, given lines, they didn't make it into the show, but I was learning choreography and I was rehearsing and I found myself with actually a genuine part in the film. And that meant I had money in my pocket. I paid for um, my uni degree, which was heavily subsidized at that point anyway, uh, back in the late nineties. So, you know, it was only costing, I think like, $3,000 a year. Uh, so paid my uni degree. I got the, my parents' car adapted so that I could learn to drive. Um, and then I traveled to England on my own the first time and, uh, met up with Grey Eye Theatre Company, which is a disability led theatre company based in London. And that was basically when my world kind of completely opened up and I genuinely started to have independence for the first time wow god that's such a huge catalyst for mm. and it's interesting you know because I know people talk about oh success is you know all based on talent and there's a little bit of me that's like yes one can prepare for opportunities for success but when I look at my life if Murdoch who I do not love as a person, but if Murdoch hadn't have built Fox Studios the year earlier, and if there hadn't have been major tax incentives to produce feature blockbuster films in Sydney at that time, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. So I really do see success as a mixture of talent prep, but also luck. I don't think you can take the given circumstances out of the equation. Completely, completely. And like, I was reading um, an article about ben Brendan Fraser, actually, weirdly this morning about okay. about where because just, he just popped into my head. I was like, what happened to Brendan? Is it Brendan Fraser or Brendan Fraser? Like, what happened to Brendan Fraser? Mm. So I, I typed in, what happened to Brendan Fraser? <laughs> Google. Yeah. And an article came up on G&Q with that exact title. And they were talking about how, like, at the, uh, in the early 90s, he was this huge star. Not, it wasn't the early 90s. No, it was like, it was the late 90s, early 2000s, wasn't it? When he was in the Oh, he was so sexy. Yeah, and he was in everything. He was like this massive beefcake, and, but he kind of also looked a bit dumb. Um, yeah, he was sort of goofy safe. He was yeah. sort of safe to fancy. Yeah, and and he could act and everything. And he was just in everything. And they, and And he was talking about how, 
there is just something that you can't quite put your finger on and what makes a star and it's got to do with you know the cultural the cultural zeitgeist of the time yep. where you've come from there's just so many different things that for some reason you know an audience will just respond to you yeah. and 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 it's different for every generation for every decade for every five years and there's just you kind of can't it, it you know you could be the most incredible actor but there's just something that you won't be able to 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 quantify or pin down and like mm -hmm. you said there's all of those elements as well like and, and like I was talking to my friend Emma the other day who's a casting director and yeah it's got I mean it's got there are so many great actors and there are so many brilliant performers and comedians but you've got to it's the stars aligning isn't it you've got yeah. to have all the stars aligning at the same time for it to come together and they do and that isn't continuous that's the thing that it doesn't always happen throughout a whole career trajectory oh no and I think age is quite a shock for a lot of for a lot of actors I mean it's affecting men as much as women now although it's always affected women much more um, but I think aging is a really interesting thing to see how the politics for, um, you know, female actors changes as they get older. And actually I was talking to, um, one of the actresses I'm working with at the moment who is stunningly beautiful. And she was sort of explaining about her experience of feeling kind of constantly objectified and employed for her looks and her worries about when that gets older. And we were talking about how we've never seen um, an actor or an actress who made it purely on their sexiness. It's never, ever going to end well for them because there's something about being constantly objectified and being a body, a body or a face only that I think is really negative for one's psyche and it will just slap you at some point in your career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I guess in a way, do you think that then you're deemed as more disposable because there's um, because there's not that you're not considered to have the depth? Do you mean as in like, for example, like mm. Jane Mansfield or like? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of any actor that has, you know, I mean, Megan Fox, for example, or anyone whose looks have been their primary marketing focus. Yeah. Yeah. I think over the stories that they're telling, like, so Jennifer Lawrence is stunningly beautiful, yeah. but yeah. her work and her body of work has always got stuff going on. Same for Julia Roberts. Um, and so I think <clears throat> if, if you've, if your um, looks are more notable than the content of what you're making, um, it just doesn't seem, you know, to end well. It kind of increases the pressure, I think, for, you know, plastic surgery. And, you know, we, I was sort of noticing it when I was watching the Friends reunion. Oh, gosh, I found that heartbreaking. Like, why didn't, why haven't they just let themselves age naturally? Like, you know, because that's actually quite beautiful. Like, why are you still trying to look like a shaggable 20-year-old? Yeah. And because what was what really struck me watching that was how beautiful Matt LeBlanc was. Yes. <laughs> he was just this. And relaxed. Fat, how relaxed, chilled out. Happy, fat guy. He looked so comfortable in his own skin. He was so gorgeous, so beautiful. And I just like, 
was like you have enjoyed what the success has brought you. You and and you know and that this is not blame on Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox because like this is you know they are they are caught in a system you know and he's a man and men are allowed to age and women aren't but like. I just felt like, gosh, if they, I, I would have loved to have seen them allow themselves the same grace that he yeah. allowed himself. Yeah. I mean, but see, uh, there's a bit of me that wants Madonna to do the same. Like, I would love if Madonna did an entire tour where she played, like, why doesn't she age up? Why doesn't she do an, in, a completely rocking tour <laughs> made up prosthetically to look like she's 90? And there she is doing great routines with a walking stick, a wheelchair, and I mean, you know, way she could more set, impressive. Oh my god, it'd be really impressive if she staged an entire production as if she was in an old age nursing home. <laughs> you know, I would find that really interesting. Like to go, okay, just embrace the fact that you're getting older and and milk it. Like have some fun with it. Yeah, it's because it's just, it's, it's, it's absurd and ridiculous. It's like this circus of youth and these masks that everybody's wearing to try and look 20 when we all know you're not 20. And why do you have to look 20? Why can you not look 50? Why can you not look 60? Like, yeah, it's so upsetting and weird and I was talking to someone the other day about like you know how like in films or like in sci-fi stuff the chosen one is always a teenager oh yes and I think it was a meme or something and they're like the chosen one should be a mum in her 40s they're gonna get shit done yeah who's pragmatic (laughs) who has a plan who knows how to organize and wrangle people and is really you know sensibly risk adverse It's yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Um, I really enjoyed actually Black Widow. I don't know if you've seen that yet. The the latest Marvel. Um, seen it yet? No, I do love Marvel. And that popped into my head because I guess Scarlett Johansson's getting older, so she's sort of you know, um, she's not completely retiring from Black Widow, but yeah, thinking about even um, the Hunger Games or you know the Twilight series where. You've essentially got a teenager who is incredibly unremarkable, made remarkable because a werewolf and a vampire are in love with her. Yes. That's you know, what it is. Because she's endowed with power through the love of men, through the male gaze. Yeah, through the male gaze, she's elevated. Gosh, I don't know. You know, but that's, that's just, you know, I mean, it's just the world we live in, but hopefully it's starting to change, like, you know, I, I do love um, the diversity that's kind of, you know, coming through with this next, next generation. There's still, I think, um, I mean, we still see it a little bit with the trans movement in terms of where it becomes um, socially acceptable that those that are elevated to the front covers of magazines are kind of incredibly um, stereotypically sexy women, um, aside from their journey to kind of get there, which may have been a bit unique. But I think we still live in a world that is kind of trying to package everyone and everything in this kind of very saleable uh, sexability and and frame it that way. And I kind of, I like that that, I feel like it's starting to change a bit with the next generation. Um, Yeah. But sometimes I feel a bit frustrated with their expectation that somehow everyone should just magically know. I think we, in the West, we forget that there's huge inequality globally and that access to education and knowledge 
isn't necessarily um, an equitable thing. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes, um, I mean, it would be ideal and gorgeous to be like equality should just be expected and it should be expected. But I also think it's naive to think that we don't still need to fight for it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That somehow we can just resign ourselves to, well, it should just be. And yes, it should, but we still need to do the groundwork and the education and um, the teaching and frustratingly, sometimes the handholding um, rather than just immediately walking away from ignorance. Like there's a point at which you do to, to preserve yourself. Um, but I think sometimes we write audiences for our message off too early mm -hmm. yeah and maybe that's where concepts of cancel culture have kind of popped up that certain conversations can't comfortably ha be had so we just don't have them yeah and I think there's so much fear of getting it wrong um, oh hugely yeah and so hugely don't say yeah the I right the I know that I'm guilty of that I know that sometimes I won't engage in a conversation because I don't feel equipped with the vocabulary or with enough knowledge. And mm. I think that's also good to be able to say, I don't, I don't know how to no. talk about this. And I would like, I prefer to listen and read more and educate myself more. Um, but as long as, you know, as long as that's going to happen, I guess I think there's that fear of, of just, of not knowing. So, so just not talking about it. And well, I suppose it's, it's sort of different. Like what you're describing is being receptive to something uh, versus somebody being unreceptive uh, or non-receptive because they're shutting down in order to protect themselves from what they're going to hear. Yeah. Which is slightly, slightly, I think, a different thing. I guess because um, a, I guess because I've noticed that with that gener as like a generational thing. Because if you've spent your whole life thinking, thinking a certain way, and then you're told, well, actually, that's not really relevant that idea isn't relevant anymore and it's been explored more mm. and so then somebody has to go oh what so I have to rethink everything that I've known for the past 50 years or you know it's like yeah yeah and I know that's really because like for example a conversation that I've had with older people older than me um is the maybe maybe like 20 years older than me um the idea of cultural appropriation and kind of explaining that and the nuances of it and f because I think possibly as a generation of people who would have seen that as a real positive thing it's like well we're celebrating other cultures yeah it's like yeah I get I get where you're coming from but more kind of like there's been more written about it and it's been explored more and there's you know there's there's more to talk about it. it's not as simple as that um and I know that that's ruffled quite a few Mm. there's the people that I've spoken to because I guess that's kind of then then having to reflect on their life and the choices that they've made and that they thought were positive things because you know everything is evolving we're you know yeah. we're thinking things all the time and and I really think that with with the kids like I I really want to, I hope that they will continue talking to me to keep me mm. you know because I'm sure that there's stuff that I will say to them like mum you cannot say that yeah you know? <laughs> Yeah, but I I think it's interesting because what you were saying about cultural appropriation, and I've seen it with uh, branches of feminism and with ideas around um, race and, and disability, that there are those who are older than us who had, a, you know, like those who went through the 60s and were like, free love, everyone was equal, we achieved it. And it's like, no, you did 
you moved the bar. Mm. You did move the bar. Mm -hmm. But the conversation is changing and evolving beyond that. But I think it's kind of in some ways a little bit, I guess, hurtful for them to realise that what they did is in some ways no longer relevant yeah. or outdated because they lived it. And when they lived it, they were pushing against, you know, the patriarchy and the powers that be and they were making, they were making change. Yeah. yeah. And I think it, it's sad, I think, in some ways because maybe they feel that their contribution um gets shat upon or sort of not acknowledged when we then turn around and go, but you're still a bit racist or you're culturally appropriating or you're excluding uh, different groups because the fight that they had was to not do that and they thought they'd had that fight and that they'd got it. Yeah. But then the fight continues and the conversation evolves and I think it's a really difficult thing to realise that, you know, you re- you were running your own race, but the race is continuing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that's a hugely scary thing, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, I had, um, I had one where I really realised I was sandwiched between two generations um, and it was about what was appropriate to wear to a funeral. Um you know, and I've always been, well, at a funeral, you cover your shoulders. But the younger generation was, but if somebody finds me sexy because my shoulders are exposed, that's not my problem. Mm-hmm. And the generation above me was like, but you're being really disrespectful just by exposing your shoulders. It's not about whether I or somebody else finds you sexy. It's about the messaging and what's going on. And it was interesting because I felt like, I felt like Martha Stewart. <laughs> I, re- I kept saying I'm so sorry I feel like Martha Stewart you know but what if you just covered up for the funeral bit and, and you know got your you know took the shawl off for the wake like you can be you know as hot as you want at the wake yeah. and, and you know was like am I being a really you know old lady about this and you know the, the sort of the younger woman was like but as a woman I should be able to wear whatever I want and I'm like you should but we live in a world where everything is messaging yeah and you can you can dress that way and send it and be sending a different message because you know you're reading it and and wanting it to be something else but i'm telling you how it will also be received by others and maybe that isn't important but but that if you make that choice you're making that choice to make a statement which is totally fine and and i don't judge you for it but are you wanting to make a statement in that situation or or are you not? Yeah, it just it's just interesting, you know, and I genuinely, it was just funny to kind of go, oh, my God, like, I'm 40. The woman that was completely, you know, against it was in her 50s. And then, you know, it was a lovely, you know, 20-something-year-old, you know, younger woman that was completely like, I should be able to do what I want, you know. Yeah. And, and I agree. But, I, you know, sometimes I think... Um, that slight dilemma of I know every woman should have the right to be able to drink as much as she wants and wander down a dark alley on her way home and not be blamed should anything happen. And I believe that 100% that every, you know, we should live in a world that's safe. But there's also me as a woman going, I don't want to feel vulnerable 
and take that risk. And it's weighing that up in the the way the world should be versus the fact that human beings are all animals and I think we forget that. Like, and yes, we can change and we can evolve and we can educate, but we're not there yet. And it's, yeah, so I just find it really, it's, there's always that tension of the ideal. Yeah. And where we work towards the ideal and we campaign for the ideal. And, you know, I wish we properly prosecuted when, you know, people fail us and are predatory um, so that we at least would weed them out. And that's where I think, you know, the gaps are in our society at the moment. We, we don't police properly the real problems and we reward bad tax dodging behavior. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's just, just, just compl- that's our society in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, also I think, um, I, I don't see that we've moved. I mean, we've got tech, we've got the ability to have conversations and to think about these things. But at the end of the day, the London riots, which I was there for with, with my husband, Gareth, we were watching from above um, uh, a really awful dress shop that has those really um, garish wedding dresses in them that are like hot pink with fairy lights sewn into them. And so we were fairly safe that no one was going to break in. Although, <laughs> my God, I would have loved it if a London rioter had broken in and stolen one of those massive dresses and tried to run off down the street carrying it. Cause I know they weigh sort of like 10, 15 kilos at least. Um, you know, I would have loved that if a whole group of men that were rioting suddenly got into proper drag and, and broke I mean, into the shop underneath. That'd be such a good music video. <laughs> oh my God. It'd be awesome. You know, they, there they are like stealing trainers and sportswear and, Oh, look, there's, there's a really garish dress shop. Let's all um, <laughs> run off with some of these massively frilly tool numbers. Um, but watching the London riots, it was like the biggest, tallest buffer who can thump you still wins. Like there's anarchy. There's a free for all. There's a moment that in theory you could go into any shop and take whatever you want. But if somebody bigger and stronger comes up and says, I want that TV, you're going to hand it over. And I don't think anything has changed beyond our times when we were, you know, dwelling in caves and fighting one another for small villages and burning down each other's houses. I mean, I think the good people are are better organized and, you know, we get together and we sweep up. Um, But I think we've still got that weird vein that runs through us where if I'm bigger and stronger and you've got something that I want, I can just come and and take it. And, you know, maybe we use the legal system sometimes to do that now on a business level. But actually even that at the end of the day comes down to have you got access to to thugs and people yeah. that are bigger and stronger and able to intimidate me into handing it over. Well, it's what you, it's kind of like what you were saying about earlier about, you know, essentially it all comes down to what, well, you know, I'm going to overthrow the system, but I'm, I want the gold now. Yeah. 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 I, w- I want to keep the chateau. So can we fight either side of it and not damage it, please? You can find Kirina on Instagram at Kirina underscore Stammel and you'll be able to see her new work in the upcoming period drama The Serpent Queen alongside Samantha Morton. I will include links in the show notes. Don't forget to tune in next week for Chapter 2.
Thank you so much for listening to On The Irregular. Please make sure you review and subscribe as it helps other listeners find us.